Hope you're doing well this morning. Again, as I said earlier, thank you for coming to worship the Lord with us. I was happy to hear that two of you met at McDonald's this morning for a nice cup of coffee. I just heard the chuckle of one of those who met there at McDonald's. Interesting, because that's actually the lead into my sermon this morning. Not specifically McDonald's, but... If you and I sat down for an unhurried cup of coffee, probably not on a Sunday morning, it would be unhurried for me. If you and I sat down for a cup of coffee, we had a chance to just sit, ponder, pray, talk. After studying 1 John 2 this week, I might ask you this question. Tell me about your dad. Tell me about your dad. And uh, that conversation can go all sorts of ways, right? I could share with you about my dad. He lives about two blocks west of here. He was the pastor here for about 19 years. Even before that, uh, he and my mom were lay leaders here. They raised us here at Edgewater. Um, He is extremely deliberate about being involved in our lives as a family and he loves to sit down and he doesn't drink coffee but he loves to have breakfast he loves to encourage me um, encourage us he drove all the way out to the northwest side yesterday to watch haven play flag football she's the quarterback of her team actually that's that's dad pride right there that's my dad and i could tell you a whole lot more about him Um, But what would you say if I said, tell me about your dad? It's a sensitive question, I I understand. Um, I'm I'm extremely blessed with the dad that I have. And I know that that conversation could go in a number of ways. Maybe you've been extremely blessed too, praise God. Maybe you would talk about, like, my dad was never around. I, I don't even know him. There's a fatherless void in my heart or maybe you would say I know him but there's a real lack there it's a father lack conversation that I would have with you Andy not only does this um, passage bring this about but um, you could pray for me this week because I'm going to be doing a funeral on Friday for a young man who sorry I might get a little emotional A young man who came to Edgewater here uh, with his three siblings and uh, their mom would send them. And he was part of our after school program here for many years, part of youth group, part of summer day camp. Um, His name was Idell. And um, Idell was now, I think, about 27. Had been living in uh, Champaign-Urbana with the rest of his family for about the last 10 or 11 years. And um, Idell passed away on Monday. So they're bringing him back to Chicago uh, this weekend, and um, I'm thankful that they've asked me to do the funeral. Um, You could pray that I'll be able to um, bring some comfort, but also bring the gospel to a place that, to a family who desperately needs the good news of Jesus. Um, Idell 
knew his dad, but um, it was definitely a father-lack situation for him and for his siblings. Um, so as I'm reading this this morning, I'm feeling like, man, in our culture, there's so many daddy issues and just so much father-lackness. Um, and it affects us individually, yes, but it affects us as a culture, as a country, as a world. Um, and so I'm thankful that I get to come and bring good news this morning about fatherhood, about the Father, capital F, who all those who are in Christ have. See, following his example, capital F, Father, Dad's are meant to do a lot of things, but a couple of things are, dads are meant to help us make sense of who we are and to also make sense of the world. To make sense of who we are and to make sense of the world. Who am I and how do I navigate this place as I am who I am? Did your dad help you to do that? Make sense of yourself, make sense of the world? Does he help you to do that? Well, this morning's passage is full of references to fathers. Father John, the author here, the apostle, has been calling his readers children for a while here. And he's writing to these spiritual children, some of whom he then actually calls fathers. And he's writing to them specifically about the love of their father. So this morning we're going to explore three aspects of the capital F Father's love, Father God's love for his kids. Those three aspects are going to be these, affirmation, exhortation, and regeneration. A lot of Asians there. I'll try to um, bring those a bit more to a, a level of understanding if, if you're not familiar with those terms. Let me pray. Father, what, what a gift to say that we can through the fellowship that we have with you and your son together, we could pray that your spirit would speak to us through your word this morning and that you are present here with us and your son Jesus Christ has died and resurrected and has ascended for us. And so I ask God this morning, even as you know that my, my mind and my heart are a little bit convoluted, I pray that you would bring clarity from your word that you would speak to our hearts this morning. For your glory, God. And we ask it because we need it for our good. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So first of all, um, the love of the father for his kids through the affirmation of said kids. Would you look at verses 12 through 14 with me? John writes this. I'm writing to you little children. Let me slow down. I'm writing to you little children. I once, a long time ago, preached through the entire book of 1 John in one sermon. Um, it was a longish sermon. But what I did, and what I thought about doing today, but I didn't because my kids are older now, is I had all of my kids come up and stand with me. Not for the whole sermon, but just a portion of it. To show this was how John was feeling, thinking, and writing like a dad with his arms around his kids. 
So hear that from him. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is a section of three verses as John affirms the kids of the Father. Words of affirmation. That's one of the love languages, right? It might be your love language. I'd say it's probably mine if we're going to define things in that way. Words of affirmation are important. Parents give them all the time. Sometimes people say, well, parents give too much affirmation these days. I think there's some merit to that statement in some ways. But overall... Words of affirmation are needed. They're needed. I'll speak as a father. If, if my kids are going to get a sense of understanding who they are and how to make sense of the world, I need to be intentional in speaking things to them that affirm what I see in them. Those are words of affirmation. Here, John is embarking on that same mission. He wants to remind these kids, the father's kids and his little children kids as God has granted them to him remind these kids of who they are part of the reason why we need this you and I know this we we don't see ourselves clearly think back to elementary school how do you think you were in elementary school awkward jock nerd I'm not talking about high school. Elementary school is when you're even younger and you're just kind of like toddling around the hallways trying to figure stuff out until maybe you get into junior high. Then all of a sudden you think you're the stuff. But there's this element that, think of it, when you were that age, you were like, I I don't really know who I am if you even thought to ask that sort of question. I just reconnected with an elementary school friend uh, a couple weeks ago. We hadn't seen each other in decades. And um, he, it was interesting because, like, I thought, this guy will, probably doesn't even remember me from elementary school. And yet he was the one that reached out and wanted to get lunch. So that's, that's what I'm getting at here. We need observation, affirmation from outside of ourselves, and not just from other humans, but specifically from God. Because we don't see ourselves clearly. So John here is writing to these little children. You might think there are three categories here, little children, fathers, and young men. I tend to agree with the commentators that say, no, actually, little children is the overall general category because he's been calling them and will continue to call his readers little children throughout the rest of this book. So this is more of a general category as he addresses his readers. He's saying, all of you who are hearing this, I'm writing to you because your sins are are forgiven for his namesake. He's not saying they might be forgiven. Try to figure it out between now and death. Not that. No, he's not saying that. He's saying your sins are forgiven. 
He's giving them assurance. He's giving them affirmation that their sins are taken care of. But this isn't just a blanket statement saying, hey, you're all forgiven. No, he's saying this. Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Or on account of his name. Whose name? Jesus Christ's. Hear what he says at, the, at what John wrote at the, at the end of chapter 8. If we, I'm sorry, uh, yes. Um, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I am writing to you these things so that you do not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation or the wrath-bearing sacrifice and cleanser of us from our sins. I want you to hear this. John is not just like trying to amp up their self-esteem here. He's not just trying to say, hey guys, remember, you're forgiven. He's saying, you are forgiven, but it's not because you're all that. He's saying, you're forgiven because God in his grace has given you faith in Christ. Christ came and he went to the cross. His blood was spilt so that your sins could be cleansed. Christ came, he went to the cross, and he died the death that you should have died. That I should have died. And so he's able to say this, your sins are forgiven, period, for his name's sake. If you can't trust Jesus' name, you can't trust anyone's name. John's saying, my kids, remember the core of the good news, forgiveness of sin and fellowship with God. You're saying, where, where do you see that? That's coming, verse 12. Because now he wants to remind his kids of whose they are. I'm writing to you fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Why the difference between fathers and children? Well, he's actually moving into this section where he's talking to fathers and commentators, and I would agree, are thinking, he's thinking about guys that are actually older. Guys that might actually be biological fathers, grandfathers. They've been further down the road in their faith, perhaps. They have more years under their belt. They have more gray in their hair. And he's saying, fathers, remember, you know him who is from the beginning. Who is that? Again, Jesus Christ. Why does he need to tell fathers this? John probably wouldn't put this, but I'll put it this way. Midlife crisis. You get to a point where you're like, well, my younger years are done. What do I still have to offer? And that can lead in one of two directions. That can lead towards midlife crisis. I need to start redefining myself, trying to figure out maybe deeper spiritual knowledge, try to read all the latest books that aren't actually pointing me to him who was from the beginning. John is saying, don't go down that road. Go down this road. Remember, you know the one who was from the beginning. He's the one that initiated your faith way back in the day. You've met me, 
my guys, you've met me and I actually walked with him. I heard him speak. I saw him with my eyes. So as you get older, as you get older, do not stray and look for your life in anyone or anywhere else. Life is in him. Let your midlife crisis temptation push you to Christ. Find your fulfillment in him. He is the one who was from the beginning, and you know him. I said, how do you see union with God here? Because that's what he talked about in chapter 1. He said, through Christ, we have fellowship with the Father and with his Son. So if you know Jesus Christ, you are in this incredible reality where God has enveloped you into this mysterious union. This mysterious union with the Trinity You are no longer an individual just riding out life on your own. You have been brought in by the grace of God and joined with him. For a kid, there's no better place to be. For a father, there's no better place to be. Remember Christ. Don't wander. You know him. You've known him and he knows you. Number three. John wants to remind these kids of whose they are not. Look at this. The second half of verse 13. I'm writing to you young men. Okay, young men. We talked to fathers. It's talking about like the actual ages. Here's the thing. In this room right here, there are a lot more young men than fathers. So young men, hear this. Young women too, hear this. Mothers also as well as fathers earlier. Young men, because you, are, you have overcome the evil one. Let that sink in. You have overcome the evil one. If you are a young man, it's very likely that sometime within the last seven days, you wondered whether you have. When the temptation is so close, the flesh is so willing, the devil is so deceitful, and you can't even tell whether or not you're fighting temptation or falling into sin. Does that happen for the rest of life? It does. But it's especially strong when you're young. And John writes this incredible truth, this promise. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. How could he say something so, it it seems like, in terms of like the everyday life, so preposterous. When it seems like the evil one is always overcoming me. It's because later on in chapter 4, as we'll read in a few weeks, John says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You have overcome him in Christ. The zeal of youth, the discouragement of temptation can be so visceral, but young person, know what he's going to say in the end of next verse. Because then he cycles back around again. I write to you children because you know the Father. So, what are the, what's the core identity of a child of God? You're forgiven of your sin through Christ, and now you know the Father. Fellowship. 
That's the core of who we are, Christians. We've been forgiven, and we're in full fellowship with him. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. He doesn't change his... He doesn't change his instruction there at all or his affirmation, older guys. Stick with Jesus. I write to you, young men, because you are, hear this, you are strong and the word of God abides in you. It remains in you and you have overcome the evil one. Again, these are not empty words to boost the self-esteem of the churches that he is writing to. But these are truths, hear this, truths to be believed. And even when you think like all of life, inside and out, says this is bunk, you go back to this creed and you believe it. This is what our loving Father says about us. We can rest in his everlasting love. So he begins by saying these radical words of affirmation for the sake of, again, grounding them in who they are. And then he moves on to helping them understand the world. Look at verse 15. This is where John exhorts his kids. So an exhortation would be like a strong worded discussion not discussion because it's not a discussion it's an instruction you know the difference between a parent and a child having a discussion and having instruction this is instruction not discussion john says this verse 15 do not love the world or the things in the world if anyone loves the world the love of the father is not in him For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. John gets very blunt in his instruction. Do not love the world, my kids, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He's saying there are two irreconcilable loves. The love of the Father and the love of the world. They're oil and water. They don't mix. They're opposed to one another. And then he also offers it as a test. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If you read that and you've gone through the week that maybe I just described, you might be thinking, Oh no, there's no way, there's no way the love of the Father could be in me. Because all I felt this week is love for the world. How does John want us to measure what that even means? Love for the world. I mean, we all love sunrises and sunsets. It's not what John is talking about. He gives the material the material measure for what it means to love the world. When he goes to verse 16, all that is in the world, these are the things of the world, things in the world, like he mentioned in verse 15, 
All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and pride of life. Those three things, that's what make, that's, those are the things that make up love of the world. They're not from the Father, but they're from the world. So if you love those things, then that's pointing you towards a love of the world that is opposed, cannot mix with a love for the Father. Is John saying that the world is all bad? Is he condemning all of creation, Genesis 1 and 2, that God himself made and declared to be very good? Is he saying, you just got to stop desiring. You just need to calm yourself down. Stop desiring anything. Is this like a Buddhist take on following Christ? You just empty yourself of all desire. No, it's not. This is John exposing the world as a system of, hear this, exposing the world as a system of disordered desires. Earlier, Joe read from Genesis chapter 3. You don't need to turn there, but listen. It's the beginning of creation. God has clearly told Adam, and by that means Eve, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but just not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the serpent arrives, and the serpent says to the woman, did God actually say? Goes on to say, you will not surely die. And then he tempts her. Says, God knows that when you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. Let's review that again. She saw the tree was good for food. Food! Who doesn't love food? I love food. We all love food. Even if you don't love food, you don't consider yourself a foodie, without food, without desiring food, you're going to physically die, right? So is food taken off the table? No. What's going on here? God had given them all of those means for food, but just said there's this one tree you shouldn't eat because it's beyond food. Eve had this fleshly desire for what God had prohibited. It wasn't about the fruit itself. It was about God's prohibition. A fleshly desire for what God had pro prohibited even though he had bountifully provided. She saw that this tree was a delight to the eyes. It's beautiful. Are we supposed to like make our desires calm down and not acknowledge beauty? No. That's what God did after he made creation. This is good. This is beautiful. This is what I've made the world to be. All our Look around and look at the skin tones of one another. Like just even that in this room is an amazing Crayola box of how God has made humanity in his image. Beauty. 
Are we supposed to just deny beauty? No. But Eve, seeing this tree was a delight to the eyes, she desires for what looks good to her. Her own judgment of beauty, not God's. Third, this tree was desired by Eve to make her wise. She needed knowledge, a prideful possession of that knowledge. She wanted to be like God. Do you see the the three parallels here? The tree good for food, delight to the eyes, desire to make one wise. These parallel to the desires of the flesh that John is talking about. Desiring in the flesh what you should not have. God has prohibited it. There's no wiggle room here. There's no gray area. God has prohibited this. But our flesh says, but I just want what I want. The desires of the eye, it's not what you should not have. The desires of the eye are what you do not have. It's maybe a good thing, but you're covetous. You look at what somebody else has, and you're like, I want their spouse, or I want their house, or I want their bank account, or I want how smiley and happy their family is, or I just want peace. I don't know who has it, but I know I don't. And so the eyes look, and they look around and see what looks like peace, what looks like happiness, what looks like fulfillment, and the heart becomes covetousness. It becomes covetous because who is behind that? The question behind that is, God, why have you not given me blank? Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and pride in what you have. Consider what Adam and Eve knew about God. (laughs) Consider what they knew about God walking with him in fellowship each and every day. In the garden, no sin clouding their minds or their emotions or anything else. This this was life for them. Yet Eve had this desire to be wise, a knowledge that was beyond what God had given her. And this is what John is talking about too, a pride in what you have. So you might think, my flesh wants what I should not have. My eyes want what somebody else has. But when it comes down to it, I really do like what I have. And I want to boost myself up. I want to make myself look greater than others. Why is this opposed? Why is this opposed to the love of the Father? Because though we look at these three deceits, both in 1 John and in Genesis 3, what is the real deceit that is happening? The real deceit. lies in lying about God. Because you heard what Satan said to Eve. Did God actually say? You can't actually trust what he says. And Eve's mind starts to get a little twisted because she misremembers what God had said about eating of the trees. 
Satan's true deceit was that he twists God's word and then, hear this, he dismisses God's judgment. He says, you won't surely die. <laughs> you won't surely die. He's saying, you can do whatever you want. There's no one who should be in authority over you, especially not God. Did he actually say that? And he doesn't have the right, nor will he, judge you in death, no matter what you do over here. So actually, in a perverse, inverted sort of way, what Satan is doing is promising Eve eternal life. Eternal life of her own making. Do whatever you want, and you're going to get to do it for as long as you want. Life, 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 Eve. Just go for it. You see, that is what the world offers. Go ahead, meet your felt needs in ways that God prohibits. Go ahead, if it looks beautiful, it must be good if you think it's beautiful. Go ahead. There's more to life than God has let you in on. He's holding back on you. You know better than him. As we talked about in chapter 1, he's the liar. You can't trust him. To love the things of the world is to bow down to the surface idols that disguise the deeper idols of life free from the authority of our Creator free to do as we please without the consequences of our Creator's judgment, without death. So the fullness of disordered desire is a desire for life without God. And the one who we were created to desire is now the one we despise. So John, writing as a father, is in effect telling his kids, don't get on the Titanic. I know where this ship is headed. The world is passing away. It may promise you life, love, fulfillment, beauty, pride, but it can't actually deliver. It's going to the bottom of an eternal abyss. Do not love the never-lasting world. That's what John is saying to his kids. But of course, we're saying, but yeah, but this last week, my desires were disordered. Two questions I hope that you're asking. How can our desires be reordered? How can they be put right? And how can we live as those whose desires have been reordered? Both of those questions I answer with this simple answer. The love of the Father. First question, how can our desires be reordered? Comes to the third point. Affirmation, exhortation, regeneration. Our desires come from our hearts. And our hearts have to be changed. They have to be brought back to life. They need rebirth. 
that can only happen by the love of a father who regenerates his kids, who gives kids new life. You may be saying, well, where are you getting this? Well, hear this. This is what John says in the first chapter of his gospel. He says, but to all who did receive Jesus, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How? Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You know this as well as I do. You didn't make yourself get born. It was somebody else's decision. But all of a sudden, one day on your birthday, there you were. Life was given to you as a gift. What John is saying very clearly here is that spiritual life is the same. It is not up to your decision. It is not up to your own will, righteousness, intelligence, knowledge. It's up to God the Father. In love, he predestined us. It was the great love of God by which he loved us that he had mercy on us. The love of the Father gives new life, gives rebirth. It is, it is of his will. That's all of grace to which we should say, then why do I have it? And for some, you might be asking, how can I get it? A baby isn't inside. It's been about nine-ish months now. It's time to get out. But you might be feeling that right now. You might be thinking, I feel the weight of my sin, and I've never known new birth. I've never known what it looks like to actually know Jesus, to be sure that I'm forgiven, to be connected with God the Father. In fact, right here, I kind of feel uncomfortable because he's preaching at everybody like they are on the inside and I feel like I'm on the outside. Can I just tell you this? All of us have been on the outside. And it's only by God's grace that any of us are on the inside. This is what Jesus tells John or tells um, Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus comes with his own disordered desire. He doesn't even say it, but Jesus knows it. Nicodemus was looking for the kingdom of God. He assumed that his Jewish privilege would bring him into the kingdom automatically, but he wanted some affirmation from Jesus. Jesus does not give him what he was looking for. He says, Nicodemus, unless someone is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot know the peace of fellowship with God unless you were born again. So how do you access that grace of being born again? We've already affirmed that we cannot make ourselves be born. I just want you to hear the fact that you're here this morning is a grace from God. That he might be saying, come and trust me. Come and trust me. So how do I put faith in him? We know that to, to know Christ is to receive this gift of grace through faith. 
he actually gives Nicodemus the understanding here of what faith in him looks like. You must be born again. That's grace, Nicodemus. Nicodemus is like, how does that even happen? I can't crawl back up in my mom. That sounds just kind of weird. Jesus is saying, that's not where we're going. We're going with the Holy Spirit blows wherever he wishes. And when he gives life, life happens. He is the midwife. He is the one who gives the initial spiritual zygote that continues to develop, that that becomes that person in Christ. This is regeneration. You're saying, okay, you're, you're saying a lot of stuff here. Can we just get to where faith happens? What does it look to live? What does it look like to put my faith in Jesus? The last two verses that David read earlier, John chapter 3, 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What Jesus is telling Nicodemus there is about a story back in the Old Testament. Numbers 21. The people of Israel are out in the wilderness. They're hungry. They're thirsty. And they begin to complain. They begin to grumble. They begin to say, God, where are you? And what about this nasty stuff you keep giving us? See, they weren't fully hungry and thirsty. He was providing for them. But they were getting bored with the kind of life that God had laid out for them in the wilderness. Where is the promised land? I want that place, not this place. They begin to grumble. Hear what happens. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. These people would have supposed themselves as the children of God, the ones who were going to inherit the kingdom, and yet they died because of their sin. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, this fiery serpent up on a pole, that person shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Some things to understand here. No one was getting bit by the serpent and living on their own. All of us as humans, going back to Genesis 3, have been bitten by the serpent, by our sin. Adam and Eve fell, and it has spread through all of us. Sin has made its mark on us, and we're thankful for that tattoo. We love showing it off. These people here, they'd been bitten. None were surviving. They were seeing people fall dead in front of them. And they cry out, realizing that they have sinned. So one, 
We have all sinned. We are all sinners. Two, we are all under the judgment of God. There is death to come, even if you haven't experienced it yet. And it's not just what's going to be on your tombstone at the other side of the dash. It is eternal death. For turning our back on the love of the Father. The Father. This is what Israel is doing here. Israel realizes they've forsaken their Father. And they ask Moses to cry out. And he, God gives them something that wouldn't make sense to them. What? We just got bit. Don't you have like a balm or a salve? Anything else that could help us with our bites? Eliminate the sin that we committed? Eliminate the effects of that sin? And he says, no. Here's the thing. It's deeper than your physical death. This episode today, Israel, is just showing what's actually in your hearts. And so God says, you need to raise up that bronze snake on the pole and people need to have the faith to believe that the way that I have made for them to be saved is actually the way to be saved. And so then they have that choice as they're avoiding fiery serpents, as they're maybe getting bit and feeling the effects coerced through their bloodstream. They have that choice. Will I look at the bronze serpent like Moses said? Or will I try to survive on my own? People at Edgewater here, this is the reality of faith. That God has provided one lifted up on a pole. Jesus, the crucified one. You may say, I don't understand how he could save me. You don't have to understand it in its full complexity. I don't either. None of us do because it's grace. Just believe that he can save you. That forgiveness can be yours. And when that happens, when the Holy Spirit opens up someone's eyes, when he gives rebirth to a dead heart, and they believe on the one who has been lifted up, they will have eternal life. When we are reborn, our desires are reordered. Paul says in Romans 6, you have become obedient from the heart. So even though these last seven days may have been some of the worst you've lived in recently in terms of the battle with temptation, falling to sin, if you are in Christ, the core reality of what your heart is today is obedient. It's not condemned. It's not iffy. It's not on a trajectory that's kind of going down here and I'm on a roller coaster. No. God himself says, if I have given you rebirth, you are obedient from the heart. When we put it this way, it becomes more and more apparent why a love for the world is incompatible with a love from the Father. He has done all of this 
But do you notice the text never says the world loves us? People, when we love the world, it's because we're moving toward the world. The world isn't saying, oh, I will sacrifice for you. I will set you up. This will just be all love. No, the world never makes that promise. We might imagine that it is. Don't go looking there. How can our desires be reordered? Through rebirth. Through faith in the one who gives new life. How can we live as those whose desires have been reordered? For one, remember, it wasn't you that gave you birth. If he's the one that gave you new life, trust him as he unfolds life before you. Believe that we have been reordered by his grace. Realize that our hearts were not meant to be loveless. We're not meant to be desireless people. To forsake the loving world that is passing away, another love must replace it. Actually, an eternal love must expel it. Thomas Chalmers wrote about the expulsive power of a greater affection. And sometimes Christians take that as, I got to get my love game going so I can get my sin game out. No. We need to remember how greatly we're loved and our hearts that are obedient will then reciprocate in love and that will expel sin from our hearts. That's the expulsive power of a greater affection. If you look at the very last verse, and with this I finish, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. To which you might say, aha, I knew the law was going to come in here somewhere. I knew there was going to be a place where I had to do something. You do, but it's the do that comes from whose you are. When you see God as your father, when he's remade you in Christ, you are now an everlasting person who will continue to abide in him. That's the miracle of being made alive in Jesus. Fathers, help us to understand the world and to understand ourselves. The Father, through the Father John, helps us that to know, to be instructed, do not love the never-lasting world. To understand ourselves, if you have been born again, you are everlasting. So believe in the everlasting one and love his everlasting people. And number three, to make sense of the Father. Only he could say things as affirming as this. And know that they're true. Rest in the Father's everlasting love.